Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. J.J. McCullough, who is a Vancouver-based political writer, cartoonist, and uh, media commentator. And I wanted to talk to J.J. Campbell about the uh, his column that appeared in The Washington Post earlier in the week. And uh, his column is titled, A Phony Islamophobia Panic is Ruining Canadian Politics. So what I can do is I'll read J.J. McCullough's column that appeared in the Washington Post, and then we'll have a little time to, uh, to talk about it. So here's what appeared in the Washington Post, and maybe you've seen it. A lot of people have commented on it online. And J.J. McCullough wrote this. During the lead-up to the 2003 Iraq War, back when invading that country was a more popular idea among Canadians than many care to remember, I recall observing an encounter at the bus stop near my house between a group of middle-aged white folks, perhaps three or four of them, and a hijab-wearing Muslim woman. I didn't see how it began, but everyone was arguing about the war, with the Muslim woman against and everyone else for. No one was making particularly good points, but it was nevertheless obvious through the white folks' sneering, dismissive tone, that they regarded the logic of the Muslim woman with far more suspicion than was warranted simply because of who she was. There was no go-back-to-where-you-came-froms or anything like that, but it was a visibly tense conversation made all the tenser by one obvious variable. Was I witnessing Islamophobia? It was certainly an unpleasant swirl of politics and culture, in which many diverse sources of social discord, violence, patriotism, religion, race, and immigration were present, either explicitly or or just below the surface. Without being too presumptuous, when Muslim Canadians experience episodes of social anxiety, I imagine the triggers often resemble what I witnessed, awkward encounters with representatives of the majority that leave Muslims feeling devalued or marginalized and hyper-aware of their otherness. The world being what it is, however, most of us would prefer Islamophobia to manifest itself in a more sensationalistic, even cartoonish way. The Canadian Parliament certainly resorted to fairly cartoonish language of its own when it passed a motion last March describing the scourge of Canadian Islamophobia as, quote, an increasing public climate of hate and fear, end quote, which only heroic government action at its highest levels could redress. When last week an 11-year-old Muslim girl from Ontario claimed she was attacked out of the blue by a bigoted monster who literally tried to cut the hijab off her head with scissors, this desire for cartoonish Islamophobia was satiated. Politicians from the Prime Minister on down tumbled over each other to tweet messages of sadness and remorse on behalf of the whole country, naturally, uh, that such wickedness had been allowed to transpire, though a barely hidden subtext was that they all pretty much expected it. After a couple of days as the cause celebre of Canadian woke Twitter, the hijab chopping story was declared false by the Toronto police. It did not happen, the news release bluntly stated. It thus joined the ranks of such other scandalous non-events as the grocery store Islamophobe in London, Ontario, who wound up being a Farsi-speaking in treatment for mental illness, or the Muslim man who got beat up by a slur-yelling assailant in a Whitby Park bathroom, only to be later deemed unreliable by police and prosecutors. There's something unmistakably perverse about this bizarre appetite. Many Canadians, particularly those on the left or in elite positions, seem to have for tales of outlandish Islamophobia, an appetite that causes otherwise sensible people to turn off their faculties for caution and skepticism and adopt the credulity of a supermarket tabloid reader. At best, they gobble up such anecdotes as a variant of so-called decay porn, in which weird cravings for tales of a hellish world can be satisfied only by increasingly outlandish stories cooked up by fabulists. At worst, these are the many gulf of Tonkins in the mind, emotional pretexts that rationalize backing politicians or legislation that erode free speech due to process or national security in the name of fighting some unprecedented enemy. I'm just going to finish this, and then we'll talk to J.J. McCullough. As the Toronto Sun's Anthony Fury observed, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has a long track record of erring on the side of radical Islam, 
a pattern seemingly born from a larger tendency to frame Muslims as creatures without agency and deserving reverence for all claims of persecution, no matter how dubious or ambiguous. This, in turn, animates many of the man's political marquee uh, political promises, from a generous intake of Syrian refugees to eliminating judgmental language from the Canadian Citizenship Guide to ending bombing raids against the Islamic State, all of which have at their core an implied need to redeem the Islam-skeptical character of Canadian society. Phony or exaggerated charges of Islamophobia, in other words, are not merely victimless non-crimes. They inflate the resolve of a certain flavor of progressive whose political agenda aims to sacrifice much of the traditional liberalism in the name of bigotry, course correction, as well as the denialist ignorance of the reactionary right, like those who peddled conspiracy theories about last year's mosque shooting in Quebec City. The end result is a society whose politics have been agitated uh, to polarize around the Muslim issue in a deeply inaccurate, unserious way. In conclusion, J.J. McCullough writes, it was particularly unfortunate to see conservative leader Andrew Scheer, who will face an uphill battle to unseat Trudeau next year, among those scrambling to denounce the scissor attack long before any hard facts were known. History has offered plenty of cause for suspicion. As the left seems poised to learn absolutely nothing from this episode, there is surely ample political ground to be seized by any politician brave enough to argue that the worst stories of bigotry are not automatically the truest, and the peaceful integration of Muslims into Canadian society, whatever the obvious challenges, must begin with a greater presumption of their host's goodwill. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. It's a very interesting column to read. Just reading it out loud reminded me of how how, how this column really hit home when I, when I first read it. J.J. McCullough, writing for uh, The Washington Post, his website is jjmccullough.com. Uh, JJ, thank you so much for the time. Uh, let's just jump around a little bit here because I read your column, as you know, on air. Where, do we, where does Islamophobia fit into the political spectrum, political dialogue in this country? Because as you pointed out, and we've been talking about Prime Minister Trudeau, Premier Wynne, Mayor Tory, Andrew Scheer, the Conservative Party leader, immediately jumped in and had opinions before we ever knew that the story was true or false. Yeah, and, and sort of what I said in the column was that there seems to be a sort of perverse appetite on the part of a lot of people in Canada to believe that Canada is this deeply Islamophobic country, and not only a deeply Islamophobic country, but a country that in some ways sort of needs to atone for its Islamophobia. And I, as I said, you know, a lot of Trudeau's uh, political agenda has been animated with a sort of implied redemptive quality. So it's like, you know, we bring in a lot of the Syrian refugees, we change the citizenship handbook so it doesn't denounce, you know, the quote-unquote barbaric cultural practices. You know, the prime minister goes to, to mosques all the time and does photo ops and this kind of thing. You know, he wishes everybody a happy Ramadan and this kind of stuff. All of this kind of stuff operates on the basis that, like, Canada sort of needs to be fixed in some way, that, like, mm-hmm. Canada is this kind of incurably Islamophobic society, and that we as Canadians, and certainly our Canadian leadership class, has a sort of moral obligation to sort of atone for that and to prove how much they love Islamic people, how much they love Muslims. And I think that, as well, the other part of that is that when stories of, of alleged Islamophobia come to the uh, come to the front, what our leaders have an obligation to do, they think, is to just be very uncritical and to just, you know, fall over themselves to denounce these stories as quickly as they possibly can to prove their anti-Islamophobia bona fides. Well, the non-leadership class is really fed up with it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, I think that Canadian people feel like that they are a tolerant bunch. I think that we think that we are people that judge people on on the content of what they do, not on their religion, not on any other sort of arbitrary variable like that. And yet, and so when our leaders sort of create this image that Canada is this Islamophobic, bigoted place, I think a lot of people are very resentful for that. In the same way that a lot of Canadians are resentful when Canada is sort of positioned as this racist nation, Canada's positioned as a country that, you know, hates the Aboriginal people, you know, all of these kinds of things. I mean, to most Canadians, that does not accurately reflect their heart, their spirit, their vision of what they want this country to be. And yet, so much of our political class operates on the opposite assumption that, like I said, that the country is sort of incurably bad and requires, like, very dramatic, redemptive action to to vindicate it. Is there a political price to be paid for this? Will will Justin Trudeau pay for it? And did Andrew Scheer make a mistake by jumping up immediately 
and uh, speaking his same concerns or the concerns that mirrored those of Trudeau, uh, even though we, nobody knew whether the story was fake or real. Well, I mean, this you've, you've basically illustrated the problem, right, is that if you do have a problem with the way that, that Justin Trudeau comports himself on this issue, well, what are you going to do? There's not really an alternative. No. Andrew Scheer has basically tacked to the exact same line. And I mean, it's even worse in, in your province in Ontario, where, you know, Premier Wynne and, and uh, Patrick Brown basically are singing from the identical playbook on this issue. I mean, because of the way that the Canadian political system works, you're really just, you can have like one or the other, like you don't have the opportunity to elect a, a sort of outsider person or someone that has heretical views on these sorts of issues. Because, you know, the second someone comes along that says sort of contrary things, well, what happens to them? They get shut down, they get kicked out of caucus, they get, you know, denied a nomination and whatnot. They so get accused of being really, racists? Yeah, absolutely. And then, then they can sort of get isolated and marginalized. So it, it's, it's, this is one of these issues where it just seems very, very difficult to get a dissident perspective. I mean, Andrew Scheer, I think, really sort of buys into this idea that, that sort of the Conservative Party in particular has great amends to make with the Muslim community, sort of really has to demonstrate in a very ostentatious way how unbiased and un, unbigoted and, and whatnot it is. And so, yeah, it, it is, it's quite discouraging. Uh, you started the column uh, by relating the uh, exchange that you witnessed between a group of whites and a hijab-wearing Muslim woman. How does that fit into the overall perspective? Um, well, you know, I, what I, I don't know if you, you read it in full. I'm sorry, I just sort of caught... I did. I read, it, I read it in full, yeah. Okay, so you read it in full. So you know that at the beginning I, I sort of recounted an, an anecdote that I remember quite vividly, where, you know, I just kind of saw a confrontation between a bunch of white folk and, and a younger Muslim woman who was wearing, you know, the, the hijab. And it, it just seemed to me that it was kind of a tense encounter, and I, and I felt for the woman. I mean, I, I, I didn't take her side in the political argument they were having, but I did have a sense that these people were kind of being dismissive and, and probably treating her as as someone whose opinions on the on the debate, which was a debate about sort of Middle Eastern politics and the war, because of who she was. And it's like, you know, that's that's not great. And I think that we can all concede that that's not great. And I think we can all concede that we do have subtle unconscious biases and that we do sort of view arguments differently based on the person who's making them. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, like that kind of thing, that kind of low-key sort of cultural anxiety, cultural tension between the different groups of Canadian society is much different than sort of saying the kind of thing that like, you know, a crazy man with scissors trying to cut a hit job off a young girl's exactly. head is in any ways like that. That is, I don't think, a representative uh, experience at all. And yet a lot of people were, you know, when this story first came out, they were saying things like, well, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all that this kind of thing would happen in Canada. You know, Canada has this serious Islamophobia problem. And this is what happens a lot with these sort of phony hate crimes is that it's what's most revealing is just how credulous people are to accept them. And it really sort of says something about the warped way that they view common people, ordinary people in this country. It's right. kind of like evil, violent monsters. JJ, I have to stop it there. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope we can uh, we can get you back. For sure. Thank you so much. All the best. JJ McCullough on The Roy Green Show. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. My friends Scott Newark and I have talked on a number of occasions about the issues of kids with families you may have concerns about. And the Cotter kids have come up for discussion. Why did no government agency of any kind intervene with the Cotter family when it was fairly well known that there were, you know, there could be problems? After all, the father was one of the best friends of Osama bin Laden, and we know what happened. And a number of people have uh, sent me emails and asked the question about uh, Joshua Boyle and Caitlin Coleman's kids, given the unusual nature of, uh, of their life in the last five years. And for some of the kids, the only life they've known is their reason for authorities to take a look at whether those kids should stay with those parents. I mean, Boyle, Joshua Boyle's not at home now. He's behind bars. In a, in a, on, on a daily basis, children's protective services across this country interfere with parents who have really no reason to be interfered with because something may be said or something may be inferred or a, or a comment made, and the next thing you know, 
there's a knock on the door or the doorbell rings and there's a Children's Aid Society or a Children's Protective Services Agency member along with a police officer or two asking your questions about your kids. And that's a scary reality. We've talked to family lawyers about that. So there's, uh, there's a great deal to talk about. Scott Newark joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, former Alberta Crown Prosecutor, Executive Officer of the Canadian Police Association, Security Advisor to the Canadian and Ontario Governments, Adjunct Professor at Simon Fraser University. The um, CV is lengthy. Scott, you've also written some some stories, some columns, and particularly on, on Joshua Boyle for American security magazines. How much interest is there in Boyle and the Boyle family south of the border? Uh, it exists without uh, question. Uh, the same way that, uh, for example, the Americans have an interest about the uh, the Catter family, or the first family of terrorism, as they call them. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a real uh, interest in it. There's a recognition. Don't forget, Caitlin Coleman is an American. So there was that uh, aspect to it, and as well, their um, quotation marks rescue was actually prompted by the American special forces discovering their location in, uh, in uh, Pakistan and saying to the Pakistani government, either you get this done or we will. So the story definitely got a t- uh, a t- attention in the United States. If you remember, uh, Boyle originally bizarrely refused to get on American rescue aircraft. That's right. He thought he'd be potentially sent to Guantanamo Bay because he'd previously been married to Omar Khadr's sister Zainab. So the Americans are keeping an eye on this uh, story as well. So when we talk about the the kids of somebody like Joshua yeah. Boyle and Caitlin Coleman, or previous to that, the the Cotter family, and you and I have had conversations. You have you have strong feelings about what should be at least considered. Yeah, I um, I, I must admit this this aspect of uh, sort of family services and caring for children. I first encountered as a prosecutor where we were involved in prosecutions of cases of guys usually on um, sexual offenses uh, and abuse of um, uh, their spouse. And that's on, you know, uh, uh, several occasions involved child services and looking to see if these kids were at risk. There was, I remember one case where there was extensive uh, child pornography that was obtained as well, too. And so I became aware, if you will, of the interactions of the criminal justice system with also the proactive... Uh, mandate of child welfare to make sure that kids were being protected, that that was created as a legal, it's not just a legal obligation, it's a legal protection for children in our country. And with the Catter family, I, I admit, I'm somebody who was aware of the Catters before 9-11. I'd been involved in some other stuff that, you know, uh, led me to that. And um, I hadn't, I, I don't think, I don't think I'd actually thought about it in the context of the kids, but when Omar Khadr was arrested and came into the news, and I started back in 2002, and I started looking at it, I had what, what you described in your intro. I mean, exactly. We were fully aware of what these parents were up to and coming back and forth between uh, Canada, Scarborough actually specifically where they lived, and were raising money for uh, al-Qaeda and ver- through various front groups. We were absolutely aware of what was going on. Uh, and yet our child welfare authorities did nothing. And one of the things that struck me about the entire uh, Cotter case was that, uh, you know, and not looking at it as a finger-pointing exercise, but rather as a lessons learned, those, if I think, uh, to this day, I still think if our child welfare authorities in Ontario had done their job, nobody would know who Omar Cotter was because he would have been removed from the circumstances of where he and his brothers and sisters were being inculcated into this Islamist death cult by their parents. And it never happened. And so when you start to look at some of these other cases, like the Boyle family and the bizarre circumstances in which these children are being you know, raised, um, I hope that is one aspect that's going to be looked at as well, too, is to make sure that these children are actually protected. That was reinforced for me about a week ago when we had this bizarre story in Toronto of the uh, the young 11-year-old girl who claimed that uh, she had been uh, assaulted, you know, somebody trying to cut off her job, and she brought her 10-year-old brother in with her who was supposedly there, and they gave a media conference, and she was named and photographed and everything, and her mother appeared. The Toronto police were, of course, investigating, and then a couple of days later, the Toronto police, to their, to their credit, came out and said, well, actually, no, the whole thing, you know, was a hoax. It didn't happen. 
well, okay, but, like, why did it happen? Exactly. And I certainly hope that somebody is at least looking into that to say, was this something that was orchestrated or planned? Were her parents involved in it? If that was not the case and it's just something that she did herself, how did that happen? How is that possible in the circumstances where she's living as a family? There are questions that need to be asked because our laws are not just about obligations. They're also about protections, and children deserve that protection in Canadian society, in my view. Well, absolutely, and there's certainly enough um, evidence of something going on, an 11-year-old standing up and and delivering uh, what essentially seemed to be not very, not well, maybe rehearsed, but she was very, very sure of herself. Yeah. So it seemed to me, and I didn't believe the story from the beginning, honestly, I did not, and I didn't talk about it on the air. Uh, well, you weren't alone in that. Well, were you? There was a number of people yeah. who had skepticism right yeah. there. Yeah. No, no, but I got criticized for not talking about it, and I understood where the now, criticism boy, came from. That is one of the consequences, yeah. one of the negative consequences, but let's take it, in my view, of the current sort of theme of Islamophobia. I understand. So, so Scott, so is there the is there the commitment to the law and is there the commitment to the protection of children to investigate, specifically investigate the Boyle situation? Because some of these kids have not lived in a in a in, in a society like ours. They were born into um, into the terrorist group reality. And now they're living with this Unusual father, and I don't know very much about the mother, but do you think that they would have the commitment to go and investigate and, if necessary, take custody of the children, or would they be concerned about, afraid of, Islamophobia labels, and then add to that the connection the Boyle clearly has with the Prime Minister? Well, I uh, did a little bit of checking. Uh, I was pretty sure the outcome of this anyway, but... uh uh, in Ontario, it's the uh, Child and Family Services Act. They definitely have the lawful authority to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you may be right about the, uh, shall we say, political co- correct hesitation that is growing, which, by the way, was exactly, if you go and do the research on the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, who were the ones that came up with the idea of uh, this uh, Islamophobia 10 years ago, it's to make people afraid to in any way challenge, question, or criticize uh, the uh, the tenets and practices of Islam. That's why I, I made the comment about congratulating the Toronto police, because I know they've come under some criticism for just saying the investigation has ended. But um, good for them for actually going and you know checking things out and looking and seeing it, what evidence there was and then making the conclusion and then publicly coming out and saying, look, this didn't happen. Okay, because I'm sure there was, uh, you know, pressures internally on them just to look the other way and not actually make a statement about it, but they did. But having done that, doesn't that then raise questions exactly as you just mentioned? So where are the other agencies? Are they at least looking at this? Because they should be. Because ultimately, the purpose of the legislation is to protect kids. Yes, and it's, it's, uh, I mean, I think it was probably originally written in the sense of, you know, from uh, physical harm or uh, incapabilities, but it does include from being subjected to improper influences. Yeah, Scott, if I Scott, if I were to open the phone lines, were being raised, say, Scotty, in a Ku Klux Klan environment. If I open the phone lines right now, and I were to say, provide me with some examples of children's aid society or children's protection agencies across Canada involving themselves in someone's life where they had no business involving themselves. My phone lines would be busy for three hours. Yeah, so, I, so I, you look I, at the, you're, uh, you're probably right. So, the, so the family, the family in the suburbs, they're eligible for intervention, and if if there's a problem, rightly so. But Boyle, I think, would they'll they'll treat the situation with kid gloves because they're afraid of being called Islamophobes and they're afraid of maybe the Trudeau connection. Um, and you know, look, the, the whole point about this is that uh, might as well be honest about it. You react to changing situations. And this reality um, of this kind of uh, ideological indoctrination, including in families, is a new reality. We have to deal with it. Yep. And we have to have our publicly, public agencies step up and do their job. Otherwise, there'll be no credibility and no belief in it. There'll be no credibility and there'll be no belief in the system. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Back with Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown prosecutor, and security advisor to the Canadian and Ontario governments, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. And uh, let's talk about this 
professor, Canadian professor, Hassan Diab, who was um, linked by French prosecutors to a synagogue bombing in 1980. Three people were killed. Uh, he was extradited to France, where he's been in prison for three years. Scott, as you know, there was a tugging back and forth between judges and prosecutors in France. Judges ordered him released. Prosecutors wanted him held. There is apparently evidence that uh, he was in Beirut at the time of the uh, the uh, synagogue bombing, and he was taking university exams, but he's back in Canada. Where's this going? Um, his lawyers have uh, actually called for, as has Professor Diab, a review of our entire Extradition Act procedure uh, because uh, the case itself, the evidence was uh, not particularly strong in the first instance, and um, even more, the process that is used in France is sufficiently different from our system that it ended up that he was being extradited back to France, not for prosecution, but for investigation. And so I think quite fairly, actually, uh, there is a call from the, uh, uh, from the, the professor plus uh, his lawyer that the entire process be reviewed mm-hmm. uh, here in Canada. What's a little bit different about this one is that this is not, as is the normal case, where it's just you know an executive action by the minister in doing something. This decision to extradite him was made by, according to our laws, by a superior court judge. It was reviewed by the Ontario Court of Appeal. I just read the judgment uh, this morning. Very, very detailed judgment. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada refused to even consider his appeal from the from the Ontario Court of Appeal ruling. So, in other words, uh, he had all of the opportunity and made the arguments that the process was unfair, unconstitutional, everything else, and it was all rejected by Canadian courts. Mm-hmm. So that's going to add a wrinkle to the uh, process where we're going to step back and take a look at it and say, okay, maybe we should rethink how we do this. But as I've followed the case and I've looked at this one in, in particular, uh, I do agree that I think it's probably a good idea that we do that. Uh, especially because in today's world, if you think about it, Roy, uh, there may be requests for extradition of Canadians from countries like Syria and Iraq and Turkey, and we better make sure that the process that we have in place that would allow that is going to be something that recognizes, you know, shall we say, the the potential deficiencies in the available evidence or in the fairness of the process of the country that's making the extradition request, and at the same time is appropriately balancing sending people back to face legitimate prosecution, but also uh, protecting Canadian rights. Now, there's some real concern when the man has a passport that is stamped and indicates uh, clearly that he was in Beirut when the attack on the synagogue took place, and uh, he has university records which also corroborate that he was in Beirut taking the yeah, exams. It's, I, it's a I big issue. I think it's actually a little more complicated than that because mm. I don't want to delve into all of the evidence, but the point was that at the end of the day, on repeated occasions, the French courts that had authorized the request and certified the request, I think it was eight separate times, said he should be released and the right. it was prosecution service kept appealing it. Yeah. So there obviously was not the solid basis in it I think it's a No, I was talking about when he was released, when, when he was extradited from Canada. Correct. Well, they should, should have looked at that. That evidence should, should have precluded that. Hey, let me ask you quickly, because we have about a minute and a half. Boyle is going to be in court on Friday, this coming Friday. What do you suspect is going to happen? So you're asking me to speculate? I am. I see. Um, well, you know, supposedly this is just to have his lawyers and the prosecution work out a bail um, uh, release. That's kind of strange. You know, it's taken virtually a month. He hasn't even entered a plea yet, right? That's just a little bit odd. The uh, prosecutor and me, I must admit, I kind of look at this and wonder if they aren't uh, negotiating something larger than just bail conditions. And, in fact, whether or not it's gonna, we're going to see that there's the beginning of a process, at least, of where there's a plea bargain uh, that is agreed to and, you know, guilty pleas are entered on some charges and they've, you know, they've worked out what some of the resolutions are going to be and if there's going to be pre-sentence reports. It just seems strange to me that this has gone on uh, as long as it has without him even entering a plea. 
Well, they better be able to convince the Canadian people that, that what they're doing is transparent and correct uh, according to the law. Emphasis on the word transparent, okay? Yes, because sir. so far, all these goofy publication bans, okay, that are supposedly in place to protect victims, all too often they frequently end up simply protecting the person that's accused. And I think I agree with you. I think for some of the stuff we talked about earlier, you know, Canadians have the right to know essentially what's gone on here, yep. and that this is an, the whatever it is that is the ultimate resolution is appropriate in the public interest. Mr. New York, thank you for the time. Okay, Roy. As always, all the best, Scott New York. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on nine hundred CHML. So the British government was asked in the House of Lords whether I'm paraphrasing here, whether if Christianity were to be um, declared, or if Jesus Christ were to be declared the only true Son of God, could a Christian who made that declaration in Britain be facing a hate crime charge? Your first feeling would be nonsense. Well, not so fast. Not so fast. Sam Hales is the editor of Premier Christianity magazine in the U.K., he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Hales, thank you very much for the time. And as I understand it, it began with a Lord Pearson of Rannoch question in the House of Lords, the former leader of the UKIP party. What happened? Yes, that's right. Lord Pearson asked a question of the government in the House of Lords, and he said, if someone were to declare that Jesus is the only way to God or Christianity is the only true religion, could they be arrested for a hate crime or for any other offence? And the government's representative in the House of Lords actually refused to comment on the question. Uh, and Lord Pearson, who's a former UKIP leader, said that this reaction was unique, that he never witnessed the question being refused an answer. So he's really quite concerned that the government haven't given a straight answer to a straight question. That non-answer does not give any assurance just want to be clear here, that non-answer from the government provides no assurance that if someone in the UK, if you, for example, in the United Kingdom were to say, uh, profess Christianity and say that Jesus Christ is the only true son of, of God, that gives provides you no assurance that you could not be arrested for a hate crime. No, no, it doesn't. And I think that's why Lord Pearson is, is so concerned about this. Now, it should be said, this is hardly the first time a politician has not given a straight answer to a straight question, and I'm sure the politician in question may have been thinking they didn't want to get drawn into such a specific issue. But I think this does speak to the heart of why so many people are concerned about this terminology around hate crime. Because according to the current legislation, whether or not something is a hate crime seems to be very subjectively dependent on how a person feels. If I walk down a street and I hear something that I don't like, then I could go to the police and say, this is a hate crime because it's attacking my feelings, something I don't like hearing. And people are concerned that these sort of subjective feelings about hearing an opinion you don't like could trump free speech, which I'd like to think all of us would agree that would be a bad thing. And we should be, we should be campaigning for free speech. And actually, you know, in a society where you have free speech, that means your feelings might be hurt. And just because your feelings are hurt, that doesn't mean that someone else is guilty of a crime and should be locked up. You know, I, I, I'm part of this debate about freedom of speech or freedom of expression. We've talked about it a great deal on the program. But it seems to me to be absurd to suggest that if someone who is a practicing Christian says, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in Christianity— it's absurd that for that you could face a hate crime. There's, a, there's an entire yeah. branch of the Christian Church, the Church of England, yeah. that that was that, exactly. that originated and and has its core in the UK. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of Christians are are concerned about this. I mean, in this country over the past year or two, I can think of a number of street preachers who have been arrested. Now, I should. Um, quickly say that in the vast majority of those cases, all of the cases I'm aware of, although they've been arrested, they were later acquitted when it, you know, before it went to court, before it got any, got any more serious. But even so, even the idea that street preachers are currently, have, you know, have been arrested on the streets of Britain is something that's going to concern, I think, not just Christians, but anyone who's concerned about free speech. Mm -hmm. Because I wouldn't want to make this just a Christian issue. I think actually all of us should have the right to say 
what we think in terms of our religious beliefs, even if that offends someone. And I think in general in society, we need to get better at coping with difference and saying, you may believe something that I find even abhorrent, but I respect your right to that freedom of expression. I think that's something we have to... Yeah, that, that, I, I suppose that should be said, but I th- take that to be self-evident. But the question was specifically about whether someone who professed Jesus Christ to be the Son of God could face a hate crime. That was the question. When the government refuses to answer, what that does is really weaken, in the minds of many, weaken the argument that freedom of expression extends to your religious belief. And that is, that is really troublesome. Have there been, you talk about street preachers being uh, arrested. Have there been any cases in the, in the UK where um, a, a priest or a minister has had to tailor a, a, a sermon or has been under investigation for a hate crime for saying something specifically or, or quoting from the Bible? I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that's quite happened just yet, but I think what we're seeing is that in general, the trend towards shutting down or at least monitoring what some Christians are saying that is a worrying trend that I think a lot of groups are keeping a very close eye on. I think Christians are campaigning quite heavily on when those cases come about. So I can tell you, for example, about the case of Mike Overt. He was a, uh, a street preacher, and he was convicted of a religiously aggravated public order offence when he was uh, preaching on the streets in Bristol. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, a, n- a number of other people arrested with him, and a couple of those people were uh, immediately acquitted. Uh, it took longer for, for him to, to really find justice in this case. So it, it's people like that. It's the street preachers on the street where people are concerned that why are these people even being arrested in the first place? I mean, fair enough, they've been acquitted later down the, down the road, but actually... Um, Clearly, there needs to be, I think, a, a bit of better training for some police officers to think it's even appropriate yeah. to arrest someone in the first place. Um, but, you know, this, again, we go back to the legislation. This is the problem with having a something on the statute that talks about hate crime, where it's the victim who gets to decide whether it's a crime or not. We mm-hmm. need, I think we need to be a bit more objective in saying whether something's a crime or not and, just, and not be so subjective on the person's felt hurt feelings. I'm not so familiar in this country with the phenomenon of the street preacher, but I, I assume that's exactly what it sounds like. Yes. Yes, it is. And it should be said as well that you know, plenty of Christians would say when it comes to spreading the Christian message, they would not personally be in favor of taking to the streets and basically shouting at people. I think a lot of Christians would say that that's not the way we, we kind of want to do things. But that said... There are Christians who feel like, you know, a way of communicating what we believe. You, you go down into the shopping centre and you set up a microphone or you use your voice and you start proclaiming Bible verses and, and what Christians believe. And, um, you know, like I say, these street preachers, they sometimes say things that are um, perhaps not very politically correct, um, whether it be about homosexuality or Islam. And next thing you know, the police are turning up because perhaps a gay person has walked past or... Um, or a Muslim has walked past and heard something and reported it to the police. And my concern is, when it's reported to the police, the police need to turn around and say, you may not like what you're hearing, you may find it offensive, mm-hmm. but unless this person has singled you out, suggested that you should be attacked in the street, and there's no crime that's been taken place here. All that's happened is you've heard something you don't like. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. An email from... Emily Dell, so if that statement is a hate crime, the belief in Christ, then in contrast, shouldn't saying there is no God be a hate crime as well? And Emily, I would suspect that would depend on whether somebody would complain to police that you had offended that individual with your belief system or non-belief system. And uh, Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine in the UK, if that scenario were to happen, would police be investigating whether or not a hate crime had happened in that case? Uh, That's a very good question, Roy. Um, I I don't know. Uh, All I can say is that my hope is that the the legislation on this tightens up and we stop from going, we stop from being in a position where a victim is allowed to declare hate crime with, frankly, no real evidence. Um, as to any objective wrongdoing, and instead we tie up the law. Because I, I do think that, that Lord Pearson has a point when he raises this issue in Parliament, and I am concerned the government failed to give him the straight answer. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk, talk to us, please, about the two Spanish priests, If I'm sure you're aware of the story, charged with hate crimes for what they'd said during a service? 
I'm actually not familiar with the details of, of that, Roy. I'm sorry. I'm, okay. uh, you know, somewhat constrained by geography in that sense. I hold my hands up and say I'm only really aware of what's happening in the UK. All right, so let me ask you this then. Is Britain torn on the question of religion? Is Britain torn on the question of Christianity and Islam? We, we see reports on the news which seem to suggest to us that that might be the case, but you're there. Is it a, is it a major issue? Is it something that divides Brits? Well, I think we've got to be honest about this. And, and part of the problem with the conversation around Islam is I think there's a lack of honesty on both sides. So what happens in the, in the mainstream often is you have two equal and opposite errors. The error on one side is to basically paint Islam as such a huge problem that every, and suggest that every Muslim in the UK is extremist and has terrorist links. Now, that's clearly false. But there's also another error which says that, oh, this, is, this isn't a problem, we should welcome as many Muslims into this country as we, as we can fit, it's not going to affect our society, it doesn't matter if they bring a different culture or a different set of beliefs, who cares, let's, let's just aim for as much multiculturalism as possible. And I actually think both, both of those points of view are wrong, and I, I would want to urge people away from either extreme. And from a Christian point of view, I would say, um, you need to be honest as well, and say that Muslims want Christians to become Muslims, and Christians want Muslims to become Christians. What I mean by that is that both of these religions believe something about God, and these religions are very different and distinct. And so there is going to be a clash on a theological level, because we believe two very different things, and importantly, we both believe it matters. We believe that what you think about God could affect your eternal destiny. Mm-hmm. So on a theological level, there's some serious differences. Yeah. This conversation could probably have been avoided, had the representative of the government in the House of Lords simply answered the question the way I, I suppose Lord Pearson expected or wanted it to be answered, and that is, no, you cannot be uh, charged with a hate crime if you, if you speak as a Christian and declare yourself to be Christian, but that did not happen, and what it does is it, it just continues the dialogue, and it doesn't always broaden. Sometimes it becomes more and more narrow. Yes, exactly. And we've got to guard against that you know, narrowism that, that, that can happen. I think instead uh, we need to have a, a broader and a more honest and open conversation. And, yeah. you know, in our country, we are becoming more and more secular. More and more people are saying they don't believe in God. And my concern is as that happens, people will want to diminish religion as something that's not important. It should be left to its own areas. And actually, you know, as you mentioned, here in the UK, we have a very strong tradition of having bishops in the House of Lords. We have religious figures at the heart of our parliament. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's really important, because that, that's our country saying we, we believe that there should be a moral basis to our lawmaking. Um, and I think even if you're an atheist, even if you're someone who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, you can understand that Christianity historically, although, it, of course, it's a mixed picture like any other religion, for the UK, it has brought a huge amount of good in the sense that our moral um, foundations, the, the, the laws that have made this country historically have come from a Christian worldview, and so even if you're not a Christian yourself, I think there should be some understanding of the history yeah. in acknowledging that Christianity has done a lot for, uh, for our country, and indeed much Yeah, but I, my, my, my listeners know this. My listeners know this, Mr. Hales. I started out as a little guy in England. I lived in England until I was 10, and I attended uh, a Roman Catholic school, and on Wednesday mornings I would go to the church with every other little kid, six-year-old, and attend the service. And then they found out that I was Church of England, And they ordered me out of the church and told me I was no longer allowed into the church, that I would have to wait on the the playground for my schoolmates to come out of of the church, and then I could mingle with the kids again. And I I remember to this day being so deeply disappointed. And uh, here we are arguing, or at least we're talking about what happened in the House of Lords. Also, when I was a little guy, we had to wear ties. You would know that. Maybe don't. Uh, you're younger than me. But we had to wear ties and shirts when we were six years old, and I hated the tie. And I remember yeah. I remember the teacher saying, Master Roy, where's your tie? And I said, it's in me pocket. Anyway, Sam, thank you for the time. Great talking to you. Thank you. Great to talk to you. All the best. Sam Hills, the editor of Premier Christian Magazine and the commentator on Premier Christian Radio in the U.K., You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Joining me now is Major Mark Campbell from the Princess Patricia Canadian Light Infantry. Major Campbell was in Afghanistan and in Afghanistan an IED um, tore away both of his legs. Major Campbell has been part of the um, Equitas lawsuit 
that was in court in British Columbia, and uh, the complaint was, the charge was, that the federal government uh, does not live up to the social contract. I'm just saying this loosely. Uh, did not live up to the social contract that they're sworn to have or supposed to have with members of the military. So Robert Borden made that commitment in 1917, prior to the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Uh, British Columbia Court uh, said recently that the case would be dismissed on merit issues, but the Equitas Group is going to, uh, they're going to indicate whether they're going to appeal. Major Campbell, have I got that basically right? Yeah, sure. Uh, afternoon or good morning, Hi. Roy. Uh, things are things are good. I hope for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. You've 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 pretty much encapsulated uh, what's going on in a nutshell. Okay. So let me play for you now, because we're always fighting the clock. But I want you to hear this. Sure. Um, Prime Minister Trudeau was speaking to Bill Kelly, a talk show host on 900 CHML in Hamilton, prior to the Prime Minister's appearance at McMaster University that afternoon, and mm-hmm. Bill Kelly asked him about the relationship between the government and the military. And here is what the Prime Minister said after Bill's question. Hear it all. Prime Minister, another hot-button issue that we've had a great discussion about here on our program over the last number of months is uh, is uh, proper treatment of uh, wounded veterans. And I know you made that a key point of your election platform a couple of years ago, and uh, and promises were made then. And uh, you promised that, that, unlike the previous government, that you would be fair and, and compassionate with our wounded and disabled veterans. Uh, yet the government continued the court case out in British Columbia that basically argued that the government had no moral responsibility to, to those Canadian heroes. Why did you do that? Well, I think uh, we, we need to we need to understand we have to get it right for our veterans. We have to make sure that we are fulfilling our sacred obligations. And whereas governments of the past uh, tended to just write a check uh, to a, an injured or wounded veteran and say, okay, uh, there you go, um, try and make do, uh, we're washing our hands of you, uh, it's much more important to provide services. That's why we reopened the uh, nine veteran services offices, why we're providing more support for families, for caregivers, why we're creating more programs for, uh, for rehabilitation and for uh, reintegration and for workplace training. These kinds of things also go along uh, with, uh, with the investments we have to make in, in veterans in their future. That's why we're uh, returning uh, to uh, lifetime benefits for, uh, for our most injured veterans. These are things that, uh, that Canadians know matter. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to please everyone. And some people are going to want uh, more uh, than, uh, than the fiscal frame is uh, able to bear. But uh, we know that doing right by uh, our veterans, particularly after they've been uh, not done right by, uh, you know, for many years, uh, is, uh, is, is a priority. And I, I'm, I'm very pleased with how uh, people are responding to our, our, uh, our, our, our moving forward on this. What was that? Um, more than the fiscal frame can bear, said the prime yeah, minister. Yeah, I caught that one as well. Isn't that interesting, Roy? Um, what do you I'm say not to sure that? what the fiscal frame he's referring to is. I mean, if he's talking about the national, you know, national gross domestic product and 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 what the what the country has in 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 terms of, um, in in terms of financial capacity, I I I think he's being disingenuous. Um, to be honest with you, I I don't I don't think he's being honest. I mean, what what more important um, what more important uh, thing is there for for a government to look after than than uh, the the veterans that have been injured in the yeah. service of their country? Yeah. And I just I have a hard time wrapping my head around someone who says we don't have enough money in the kitty to pay for for disabled veterans, but we have enough money to, for instance, uh, engage in a war. And and Mr. Trudeau also, I mean, he said at the end. Essentially, that Canadians are happy with the decisions he's taken and the approach the government has taken toward veterans. Is that what you hear from the veterans community? Is that what how what you feel? Uh, that's, that's that's certainly not not how it resonates within the veterans community. I mean, I think we all um, I think we're all disappointed um, to to a large extent with with what the government has done uh, recently with uh, its so-called return to lifetime pensions. I mean, what, what, well, what I think what Canadians want is a prime minister who actually believes what he says, first and foremost, and then acts upon what he says with a sense of urgency. And, and, and we're just not seeing that within the veterans community and within the, 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 the sphere of veterans' issues. I mean, um, the, the, the financial compensation package hasn't substantially uh, increased as a result of the most recent um, 
uh, discussions. In fact, 88% of veterans are, are left out in the cold with absolutely or effectively no change to their, their financial situation. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's great to talk about wellness and reintegration and warm, fuzzy terms like that. But unless the family has the financial uh, security, long-term, lifetime financial security that's going to see them through, then you can't have any of those other warm and fuzzy things. They just they, they, It's impossible for them to take place. It's impossible for wellness to occur. It's impossible yep. for reintegration to occur unless the, the disabled veteran's family has the financial security they need moving forward uh, for the remainder of their lives. And quite frankly, um, lacking that, it, 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 it makes it impossible for anything else to occur. Major Campbell, I couldn't agree with you more. We've talked many times. I played that clip for you earlier in uh, about a week ago. I wanted yeah. you to hear it again. In about five to ten seconds, can you tell me whether or not, when will we know whether the Equitas ruling is going to be appealed? Uh, I would think you'll hear something by the end of January. Okay. We'll yeah. talk then. Major Campbell, thank you. All the very best, and thank you for what you have done and continue to do for Canada. Well, thank you very much, Roy. You have yourself a great day. Take care. Major Mark Campbell, PPCLI, Canadian Hero. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I've uh, been reading a lot about what's going on in Cape Town, South Africa. As they face a, a, a crisis situation, the water is, their water's almost run out. I read something about the major dam in the area being down to 7.9% of its capacity. And as it gets to the bottom, you can't use that water anyway because of impurities. So there's very little water left in the Cape Town area. Four million people in uh, Cape Town proper, from what I understand. And when the water runs out, what happens to them? And why has it been allowed to get to the situation that it's in? What's going on? Giovanna Gerby is a resident of Cape Town. She's also a broadcast reporter. And uh, I've talked to Giovanna on a number of occasions over the years about what's been going on in South Africa. And Giovanna, this is a thank you for taking the time. It's just after midnight for you, so I'm really appreciative of your of your joining us. This is a this is a terrifying situation that you're facing. Good afternoon, Roy. Indeed, it is. It is. Capetonians are in a state of despair. We uh, feel helpless. There's lots of anger. And our mayor, Patricia DeLille, on Friday said that Cape Town has got to the point of no return, which means that we are hurting along to the 21st of April, which is exactly in three months' time. And that day is being dubbed as day zero, the day when the taps are going to be switched off. We will not have a drop of water coming out of our taps. And this is going to lead to all kinds of problems, sewage problems, businesses will grind to a halt, especially those who, that are dependent on water. Uh, imagine restaurants, eateries, those kinds of things that have to maintain uh, standards of hygiene. Um, and Cape Town, for anybody, any of your listeners who've been to Cape Town, uh, it's a world-class city. Um, we are a developing country, but Cape Town most certainly is a beautiful city with 4 million residents, uh, lots of beautiful landmarks, and it's very dependent on the wine industry. And I've seen some of our South African wines on your shelves from the Western Cape in Canada, and it depends a lot on tourism. And we've just come out of our main summer holidays, where everything shuts down from the mid middle of December to uh, the middle of January. The children started their new... Um, schooling last week, the new term, the new annual school to a year. And so summer holidays are done, and normally to, in Cape Town we see a lot more tourists. Uh, but I think a lot of people were forewarned, so other South Africans who travel to the Western Cape were really put off by coming to Cape Town in hotels. They've taken away bath plugs. Um, so it's really, really quite a scary situation that we're in at the moment. So why did this happen? I, I understand that there's been a significant drought for a number of years. But what led, ultimately, what, what were the factors that led to the situation that you're all in? Well, I think it's been a lot of bad planning. And there are so many analysts and climatologists that have spoken around this issue. Everybody has different points of view. And 
nowadays when you ask somebody, you say, hello, how are you? Everybody used to say, oh, my back is sore, I've got a headache. Now it's, oh my word, the water, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And there's really been a lot of bad planning in this situation, no matter what you look at it. Uh, but one of our, our online journalists uh, last week said that if we start blaming, you know, we can't drink blame. So there is a lot of blame going around, especially for normal citizens who are angry, who don't understand why this is happening. So South Africa is in general a water-scarce country. Johannesburg had a bit of a drought situation at the beginning of the year, and that got resolved by the city authorities and the ANC putting off water for a number of hours per day, and they got through it. They, they had summer rainfall, which is about now, whereas we have winter rainfall. Autumn starts in around April. And we've had three years of dry weather, dry winter. So from April to September, hardly any rain. The, the dams have just started getting emptier and emptier. And I think the, in, in the Western Cape, we have the, the Democratic Alliance, which is the opposition party. And... This is the only province in the, out of our nine provinces that is ruled by a party that isn't that of Madiba of the ANC. And water is a national competency. So the opposition party, the Democratic Alliance in Cape Town, has been appealing to national government for some kind of in- intervention. But whichever way you look at it, everybody has started way too late. Mm-hmm. Um, this the is officials a- were thinking that... Last winter it would rain. They were hoping for rain in 2017. It never came. And I think they're still hoping that it's going to rain to to get us out of this dire situation uh, that we are in. We're also really stuck in the middle of a very difficult political situation where we are going to have general elections next year. And the ANC, whose national government is in charge of this national resource, of the, of the water, and it's their competency. Um, I had a feeling that they were going to save us at the last minute uh, by some kind of, by injecting more money into it. The Western Cape hasn't really got a lot of money from national government to sort out this problem. And we have a lot of problems within the city structures. Our mayor has been, on Friday, she was... As recently as that, she was stripped of her powers to oversee all the water projects in the Western Cape. Um, there's a lot of infighting within the Democratic Alliance, and she's facing corruption charges. She's absolutely astounded um, that she's been stripped of her powers, but the whole mayoral committee of water and sanitation is now going to be overseeing uh, water in, in the city, and she's going to be fighting it. So we have national governments that, I don't know, some people are saying that they're quite glad that the Western Cape, a DA-led province, is in this tricky situation. Um, meantime, in the city council itself, there are massive problems. Um, and she's going to probably head to court this week coming uh, to contest all her powers being stripped. But everybody has I know I've taken a very long way to explain it, but I think the political situation is really important. And we have the city structures where there's a lot of infighting. We then have provincial and national. Um, so we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. In this, in this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Uh, Giovanni, the picture that you're painting is, is frankly terrifying. Uh, what water resources do you have available in Cape Town, and what other possibilities are there? The, the really scary part is that the authorities knew as far back as 2001 uh, that the Western Cape would run into a problem. And the water resources that we have at the moment, we have six major dams, and the average is sitting every Monday to do a calculation according to wind and evaporation, how hot it's been. Last week, the dams were sitting at 28.6%. The last 10%, so effectively, we've only got 18.6% of potable water left because the last 10% is totally unusable due to the poor quality. It's very um, near the silt and the bed of the, the, the dam. 
Um, and we've been experiencing extremely hot summer conditions at the moment. I'm sure you would love them. Um, <laughs> so you did tell me that it's about two degrees but where you are. It's balmy um, now. We had about... Sorry? It's balmy now at, at three degrees. <laughs> balmy, two degrees. <laughs> well, I can tell you, we're very, very balmy. Um, there's about 35 degrees at the moment, and the water in the dams is a bit evaporating. Weather forecasters had predicted a bit of rain for this evening, and there is nothing. It is boiling, um, and it's, it's really a problem. So the, the resources, the, if you remember the Australian situation, when they went through a similar drought, they started immediately building desalination plants. For the last six months to eight months, uh, the officials have been talking about desalination plants, but a major, we're surrounded by the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean, so it's really, really an obvious choice. Um, but a, a big and effective desalination plant is going to take about three years to build, which isn't going to help us with our situation now at all. Mm-hmm. Treating wastewater, a little bit of that is happening. And they are watering, in Cape Town we have 25 golf courses, a lot of that treated effluent uh, water is going onto our golf courses. And then they are tapping into under Table Mountain. We have um, various aquifers extending, but there was a problem in the states where um, a whole aquifer was drained about 50 years ago, and the farmers are still suffering the consequences. So our authorities are really proceeding exceptionally cautiously um, with draining too much water out of the aquifers. So if we put all these factors together, desalination, treating wastewater, and tapping into the aquifers, we will only get literally a drop in the ocean of what we need at the moment. Um, Let's say at the beginning of 2017, uh, Cape Town and residents were using about 1.2 million liters of water. We've managed to bring that usage down, cut it, slash it in half, and we're now using about 620,000 liters per day of water. Um, So I think we've done extremely well. But the authorities still want us to slash it even more. We haven't managed to reach a target that they set of 500,000, so we're about 120,000 over the limit. Um, And the city effectively needs about 5 billion rand, which is around 500 million Canadian dollars. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So what they've started doing is hiking water prices. If you are a consumer that consumes more than 50,000 liters of water a month, you're going to be slapped with 2,000 Canadian dollars every month. Um, And residents themselves have been quite innovative as far as as putting in tanks. We've had a few days of rain, um, not nearly enough to make any kind of dent in the dam or any kind of difference. People have been putting well points and boreholes, and surprise, surprise, on Friday, um, the council said that people are not allowed to use that, the boreholes anymore um, as this is draining the underground resources. Uh, so we really, really are in big trouble. Yes, you are. In fighting all nationals' unwillingness to, to kind of help us um, has put us in this very precarious position of not enough planning. You know, we should have done the planning Let's say eight months ago, they should have put tougher restrictions in place. Mm-hmm. And on day zero, in three months' time, they're saying that we're not going to have any water in our taps Can't at all. Can't imagine. Um, and at the moment, we are restricted to 87 liters per person per day. That, that restriction is going down to 50 liters per person per day. I think the average in Canada or the worldwide um, usage is about 250 liters per day. And is it not also the case that they're talking about ultimate reductions to 25 liters per day. Yeah, we are going to be, apparently, if the taps are turned off, we are going to be queuing for water. Um, the city does not stay talking about it. The, prim- the Western Cape Premier tomorrow is going to be visiting a brewery as they have a natural spring where they make the beer. People are already collecting water, and I think it's a little bit misleading when you see on international channels like CNN people holding plastic bottles collecting water. That isn't really happening at the moment. Um, People are going to the spring to augment their use at home, um, but that very well is going to be the reality um, come the 21st of April. Um, But the city, the questions have been asked to them, the safety and security, what is going to happen? Where are we going to, to get water when the taps are turned off? 
They're saying that there's going to be about 200 sites around Cape Town where we will be able to collect water. Um, imagine, Roy, 4 million people queuing at 200 different sites. Just do the math. You will see there will be, you will be queuing. What is going to happen to people who work, the old, the infirm, um, people who have young children, um, people who don't have transport, because our transport isn't in the best situation either. So how are you going to collect 25 litres of water? And, and the new thing that they've said is we're going to have to pay for that water that we collect at collection sites. So what? Are we going to get cash? Are they going to be set up for credit cards? Um, are they going to come up with um. a coupon system, put it on your bill? How many people are they going to figure out living in your house? Um, it really is an absolute disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, we're now sitting on level 6 uh, B uh, water restrictions coming to effect on the 1st of February. That's when the 50 litres per person come into effect. Right. Um, no watering of lawns, gardens, washing cars, filling up your pool has been taken place. And we're only probably going to have water for cooking, showering for nine, at the moment, what we've been told is about two liters for cooking, uh, a 90-second shower, one toilet flush per day. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it is... It, what about hygiene standards? No, I understand. I'm, I, I'm say I understand. I'm trying to understand. It's a, it's a crisis situation that you're facing. Giovanna, can, uh, I'd like to speak with you again as we get closer to this April the 21st, and hopefully the international community can do something to, to help. I have to... I have to uh, go now, but I, I thank you so much for joining us late at night in, in Cape Town and uh, critical situation. We'll stay in touch. Not, I'd, like to, I'd like people to, to continue to understand what it is you're facing. Thank you, Roy. Thank you, Giovanna. Take good care. Giovanna Gerby in Cape Town, South Africa. Wow. It's a real crisis, a real crisis. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.